Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. We've got an awesome Friday for you. First up, I sit down with Frost Giant Studios CEO, Tim Martin, to talk about the business of online gaming. He worked on one of my favorite games ever, StarCraft II. And so we go deep into uh, real-time strategy. And it was just an amazing discussion. It got me really interested, Molly, in potentially investing in video games. Maybe people should make a bubble mm. and of their video game pitch and send it to you because that's yes. a very visual pitch that we'd want to see. Be great. Um, be great. That is just an absolutely great conversation. And it's just pretty darling, actually, to hear Jason like geek out on video games, which does not yeah. happen. That's very happen. often. And then, of course, we have another edition of everybody's favorite, OK Boomer, with producer Rachel. It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Policy Genius. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. And Intercom. If you're an early stage, high growth startup, you can get access to Intercom's early stage academy today at a 95% discount. Join the program today at bit.ly slash early stage 22 or email them at startups at intercom.io. Okay, everybody, I'm really excited about our next guest. We don't talk too much about video games here on This Week in Startups because the video game industry has become a bit of a, a giant conglomerate business, right? You have these giant conglomerates, they make all these big games, the games cost hundreds of millions of dollars to produce. And it's kind of left its startup roots. But our guest today is very much involved in a startup called Frost Giant Studios. He's the CEO, co founder, and the production director. But we had uh, Nolan Bushnell on the show, the founder of Atari back on episode 282. That was 10 years ago in August of 2012. I met him when I was in LA. Really great guy. If you don't know Atari, that was sort of the beginning of not only, you know, the video game industry pong becoming a major cultural force in our lives uh, as humans. But it also was the start of Sequoia Capital. Very famously, Sequoia was the only company that backed Atari. Atari was unbackable. But Sequoia Capital back in its early days was able to back the crazy concepts that Nolan Bushnell was working on. And it was pretty radical. I mean, people were smoking pot, they were doing business in hot tubs. It's a pretty crazy story. Uh, you can go watch Twist uh, 282. But Atari eventually got a uh, deal with, they were making arcade games, you know, basically put a quarter in them. And, and that's how I grew up. Our guest today also had the Atari 2600, like I did. And I actually had the first version of the Atari 2600, which came because Sequoia Capital pressured Nolan Bushnell to do a deal with Sears to make a Sears version of the 2600. And that became, uh, you know, this one of the great investments of all time for Sequoia. Uh, also for, put the video game industry on the map. Well, today's uh, guest, Tim Morton, he worked on one of my favorite uh, video games of all time, StarCraft, specifically uh, StarCraft 2, uh, which still has an amazing, amazing uh, group of loyal fans as people have moved to first-person shooters, etc., the category of real-time strategy, also uh, the extension Tower Defense, which became very popular on 
iPads uh, and iPhones is, I think, one of the most beloved categories. And also, I believe the most sophisticated of all genres of video games. That's just me. Uh, but I'm super excited to have him here because he's got a new game coming out. Uh, and it's a startup uh, <laughs> that he's working at, not just a studio, you know, working for some big giant EA. So uh, welcome, Tim. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, Tim. Uh, so uh, you heard my little preamble there, my introduction of you. You, uh, like myself, got your start in video games with the Atari 2600. Uh, when did you get your Atari 2600? And what was your first game? Because I know it came with Tank, but I'm not sure if that was the first game you played. Oh, wow. Yeah, I actually I had uh, there, there was another pretty sure it was an Atari box even before 2600 with breakout on it that had yes. a dial. Um, yes, the dial yeah. pad. It was just breakout. Yeah, right. Breakout, you know, I, I think game. it had pong too. I think it had yes. those too. But yep. Uh, so God only knows what year that was, though. It's yeah. been a long time. It was probably <laughs> yeah. 77, 78, right? Um, yeah. And then you got into video games. Uh, your first job was Activision, if I uh, if my research is correct. Makers of uh, what was the um, great Raiders of the uh, Lost Pitfall. Are Pitfall. That was another seminal cultural touchstone, I guess, in video games. But uh, you went to work, and what did you work on at Activision when you when you went there? The first thing I worked on there was Return to Zork, which Oof. was a graphical version of yes. the text adventure that had been so popular from Infocom back in yeah. the day. Um, but yeah, then Mech Warrior Two, which was kind of giant fighting robots, but yeah. Uh, a lot of fun memories for sure. Like like Transformers uh, or, you know, mechs from Japanese yeah. culture. When did you first get exposed to the concept of real-time strategy? And why is this the most elegant and best genre of video games? It's a leading I, question. I think you and I feel <laughs> this way. I'm not sure everybody does. I didn't start my video game experience with real-time strategy. You know, we, we talked about Breakout and Pong and Pitfall and all of these simpler games. I remember when I was working at Activision, there was someone there uh, named James Anhalt, who I actually work with now at Frost Giant, but he was at Activision with me at that point in time, and he had worked on a real-time strategy game, and he was showing me a real-time strategy game on his PC, and it just looked so intimidating to me. There are all these buttons on the screen, there are, you know, multiple units instead of just the single character that you're used to in most video games. And so I I was a little scared to try it, but once I finally got sucked in and understood mm. the strategic aspects of the game, um, that it's as much about thinking as it is about reflexes, um, mm. I just got hooked. It's a really fantastic. What game was that? And maybe you could get, explain to people what the core device of real-time strategy is. That game was an early build, I guess, of, of Warcraft 2. So Warcraft mm. 2 was uh, just launching at the same time that James and I were working together. And real-time strategy, you collect resources, you use those resources to build a base on a map, use that base to build an army, and then you field that army against your opponent. And your objective is to destroy their base and destroy their army so that you can conquer the map, basically. And if you think about just from the, once you have the pieces and the map, that's kind of chess. But if you think about before that, what if chess included you had to build your queens or pawns and you had to upgrade them and 
you know, how many pawns should you make versus how many knights you, you could create, you could see this be changing the game forever. In fact, that would be kind of an interesting uh, real time strategy diversion if somebody made the real time uh, version of chess. There were another there were a couple of other moments along this trajectory. The one that the ones I remember from the 90s when we started having land parties, because this is when games became very social, I believe, uh, was real time strategy. Age of Empires, Command and Conquer were the next two I remember, and I don't have the perfect history of this, but I remember the first land parties, even before people were really using the internet, you would just bring an ethernet hub, you connect four computers, people would bring their rigs, and we would just play Command and Conquer overnight, <laughs> basically. Um, maybe you could speak to when these, you know, the impact of socialization and networking and teams had on these. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess we're in roughly 1995 at this point where yeah. Command and Conquer 1 and, and Warcraft 2 came out. And uh, Blizzard had this pretty cool feature with their games because we were on CD-ROM by this point in time yeah. uh, that if you took the CD, um, you could play with friends who hadn't even bought the game yet in a network match. Uh, mm. And they just supported that by default out of the box. So I think some of my first experiences were playing network games with friends after work. And that social aspect is something that we've come to take for granted in games today. It's just built into all games. But yeah, this was a moment in time where that social aspect was just coming into being. In uh, and, and working at that period, 95, 2000, 2005 era in video games, th there was it had moved from being startup culture, I think, to becoming larger companies. And then larger companies, I believe, would then hire studios to build games for them. Maybe you could explain how the industry sort of changed from the startup culture of the early 90s to maybe the studio structure, uh, I, I think, as a neophyte in terms of how this industry has grown in the 2000s. Yeah, that's an accurate uh, description. Um, there has always been a sense in the video game industry of platform holders. And in the simplest example, that would just be, you know, Apple has a platform, Microsoft has a platform, but also these days, Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft uh, have console platforms as well. So there's that sense of first parties who control hardware, but also then um, produce a certain amount of software for that hardware. Uh, and then third-party publishers like Activision, Electronic Arts, or today Ubisoft, Take-Two, uh, who are these bigger companies who, as you uh, referenced, do often hire outside companies to develop for them, but then they'll also have some internally owned studios that produce software. Uh, and then last but not least are the independent studios uh, who traditionally were published by those bigger companies, either first party or third party. Uh, these days, it's now possible to also self-publish. Trust me, getting life insurance can give you a lot of peace of mind. It feels great to give the people that depend on you a financial cushion just in case, right? This is your obligation. And if you want to get the best coverage at the best price, you need to check out Policy Genius. Here's how it works. Policy Genius is an insurance comparison website. It lets you compare quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential all in one place. This helps make sure you won't pay more than you have to. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Just head to policygenius.com to get personalized quotes in minutes and find the right policy for you. 
and the licensed agents at Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies. They're there to help you through the entire process, which is what you need. They're not going to add extra fees. They're going to protect your personal data. And since 2014, they've helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and place over $150 billion in coverage. They know what they're doing. So head to policygenius.com and get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Very simple. When you uh, were at, you were at Activision, and then eventually, I think you went on to Blizzard, but you also ran your own studio at some point as a startup before Frost Giant, which we'll get into in a moment uh, with all the exciting new stuff you have coming. What was that experience life? Because it always seemed to me that that was a somewhere between a tough and a horrible business to run because you were at basically the mercy of giant studios who would you know could change their minds on a whim. And you were basically doing work for hire work, you don't own the IP, you're building stuff for them. And you're kind of just on a, a treadmill, if you will. So maybe you could tell me your experience as a startup the first time around. That's a great question. I went into that startup very naively, having only worked at Activision, you know, a big publisher prior to that. And uh, I think didn't understand at that point exactly how much leverage publishers had over developers who were working for them. And uh, that startup ran for a dozen years. So it wasn't, uh, you know, an, an overnight learning experience. There definitely was time invested. But it was during that whole time, a struggle to keep the company cash flow positive that relied on work for hire deals from bigger publishers that generally on a month to month basis have milestones and they get to exert a lot of editorial control over those milestones, but also a lot of financial control on the company by deciding to pay or withhold payment um, for milestones. So it's a mm. very insecure business model uh, oh. for game studios. And, and really no upside. I mean, you don't own the IP. It's not like you can hit a home run. So you're essentially a startup that doesn't get the benefit of the outsized return that a startup can get. So you're independent, but you're on this very short leash. It just sounds like an incredibly uh, anxiety producing uh, proposition. Definitely anxiety producing. There are success stories, though. I think, um, you know, the lure that keeps you going is the hope that you can create original intellectual property, um, your own game that gets picked up by a publisher. Uh, and certainly there are examples of developers during that period. Bungie, for example, mm. uh, was one who were able to successfully create original intellectual property and, and go big. There were also examples of working on licensed products um, that sold very well and generated mm. royalty. Um, so kind of like Vegas, where everybody knows a winner, but most of the companies in this space are uh, just struggling to put in the next quarter. Uh, so at some point, you wind up going to uh, Blizzard, which owns StarCraft 2. StarCraft 2 was the business model was you, you buy the product, right? You spend 50 60 bucks to buy StarCraft, you can play it. But they decided uh, to shift it to free uh, to play. Uh, I think that was under your direction and upselling people on all kinds of cosmetic stuff and chess and, and other, you know, in game stuff. Talk to me a little bit about StarCraft to the extent you can, because obviously, it's not your company. But it seemed to me, uh, being a StarCraft player, Protos, uh, Protoss, Protoss, uh, for a long time, 
I just love playing that even as an adult into my 40s. I would just, you know, if I want to blow off a little steam, just play some heads up matches, play some 2v2, whatever. Um, the game didn't change all that much, but still super compelling. And then I would try other games and I just always come back to StarCraft 2 or some Age of Empires old title I had on my computer, which looked terrible. They just came out with Age of Empires 4 and they redid it and it's freaking fantastic. Alexis Ohanian, um, you know, the Reddit co-founder, he also plays it. We're supposed to get on some heads up matches, but it is incredible that these titles have not changed dramatically, but still have this incredible base of loyal users. Maybe you could speak to why that is. Over the years in video games, there are some genres um, that have just remained seminal. And, and first-person shooters would certainly be in there, um, platformer games, often console games. But I, I think it's fair to say that real-time strategy is one of those genres that remains seminal. There's something so fundamental about the mechanics of real-time strategy that it inspires great passion, certainly in me as a player, but also as a developer. Um, and there's an audience of people who have just stuck with it over the years. Alexis actually came to speak at uh, Blizzard at one point as well. So I know he's an avid uh, gamer, yeah. for sure. There are tens of millions of people playing these type of games, millions of people playing real time strategy every day. What does the market research say? Because you must have done some research to then go start Frost Giant. And we'll talk about your new game. Uh, that you just announced in a moment size of market it's tough because it's fragmented between different games command and conquer age of empires and blizzard's got warcraft and starcraft rts's blizzard certainly had tens of millions of rts players that uh, believe microsoft also does with the uh, age of empires franchise uh, command and conquer likewise how much venn diagram overlap there is between all of those players hard to say but what's really fascinating about genres like this is the potential to reach a broader audience. And so you look at other examples. Uh, recently, there was a game called Elden Ring um, mm -hmm. that took a much more narrow audience um, from the Dark Souls series and expanded it um, to a more mainstream audience. Another great example would be MOBA as a genre, um, which actually came out of real-time strategy, but it, it was sort of a mod of a real-time strategy Explain game. Explain what which, that is. Yeah. Uh, so... MOBA games are team versus team games, and they have a similar, similar camera perspective to real-time strategy. Um, MOBA stands for Multiplayer Online Battle Arena. And so... Like League of Legends falls in this, I think? This, this is exactly the example I was going to. League of Legends yeah. uh, you know, publicly said they hit over 100 million monthly active players. And so this is an example of something that came from a much smaller audience like real-time strategy, literally the genre came from real-time strategy and expanded it in a way that reached 100 million monthly active players. So uh, I think a lot of potential exists for genres mm. with passionate fan bases like this to, to go big. And that's mm. what we're hoping to do. So tell me a little bit about um, starting your company. And before we get there, StarCraft II became incredibly popular in Korea, South Korea, of course. Um, for some reason, uh, I don't know the history of that or why, but I do know I went to Korea 15 years ago to meet with Daum and Naver and was doing some business development there. And I went to my hotel and I'm flipping through the channels and I see StarCraft on TV. And then I flip the channel again and there's a second StarCraft channel. And then I flip it again. There's a third. There were like three 
channels of people watching StarCraft. And I think one of them was live and the other ones were replays. Esports seems to have, correct me if I'm wrong, was StarCraft the, the birth of esports? And why does real-time strategy work so well for watching as a you know person watching this uh, unfold? Yeah, I, I, so real-time strategy played a very important role in, in the birth of your esports. And certainly there are other games that also played a role, but StarCraft was a very important part of, of the formation of esports um, originally. I, my theory is that uh, being a top-down camera perspective, and I think being visually intuitive, meaning that you see a big army, you kind of understand that's powerful. You see units in that army that are large, shooting scary weapons. Like, you don't have to play the game to understand what's going on when you watch a real-time strategy game. And obviously, if you do play the game, there's a lot of nuance that you appreciate that a casual observer might not. But my wife, who is completely not a gamer, uh, comes to esports matches with me and still has a really good time because she can just look at it and intuitively understand what's going on. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it. Korea in particular, and this goes back to StarCraft Brood War, um, there was something about the game and about the universe that resonated culturally in Korea that was not planned. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, if we could kind of bottle the magic that caused that to happen, um, of course, it would be amazing to reproduce with another game. But something about StarCraft struck a chord in Korea that, you know, even people who don't play games because it was on television are familiar with the characters mm. in starcraft and just you know come to esports matches in huge crowds there are these shots of busan esports matches where uh, the crowd is just a sea of people it's incredible yeah. to watch it's really important for founders to understand what SOC 2 compliance is basically if you're a SaaS company or a services company that stores customer data in the cloud, then you need to be SOC 2 verified from a third party to close major customers. It's really simple. If you're not SOC 2 compliant, you can't close the big deals. But SOC 2 verification is brutal. The process is tedious, time consuming, and expensive. But now there's Vanta. Vanta software makes it much easier to get and renew your SOC 2. On average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant in just two to four weeks. Compare that with three to five months without Vanta. And they partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly within Vanta. And congratulations to Christina and the Vanta team for raising a $110 million Series B. What an amazing company. I loved it so much. I thought it was such a great opportunity. I invested in that round. So here is the best part. Vanta's going to give you $1,000 off. I kid you not. They're going to give you $1,000 off at vanta.com slash twist. That's vanta, V-A-N-T-A dot com slash T-W-I-S-T for $1,000 off your sock too. And there seems to be a, a, a coinciding with this was a massive change in the business model from buy this CD for 60 bucks <laughs> to just download it and start playing and yeah, we'll figure out how to make money off you later. You'll, you'll want to buy a better gun. You'll want to buy some skins. How big of an impact has that had on the gaming industry? There was this phenomenon, uh, even in the days of CD-ROM releases, where players didn't want the game to just 
stop being developed when the disk came out. Um, and as developers, certainly when the business model is get whatever it is, $50, $60 for a disk and then move on to the next one, your incentive is as soon as you ship this one, stop working on it and focus on the next mm. 50 or $60 disk that you're going to be able to sell. Um, so it took a while for the industry to understand what players wanted, um, which was they found a game they loved, they wanted more content for that game. And so uh, things like downloadable content, DLC started happening where there was a smaller pack of content post-release for a game. Uh, and slowly we moved towards distribution of content through the internet, which meant that people didn't even have to go to a store. Now they could download content updates online. Uh, and this opened the door to smaller and smaller, more granular pieces of content getting delivered. And so really, even from the CD days, there was this idea of continuing content, but it's become fundamental. And, and mm. we now talk about games as a service instead of games as an individual product. Which is essentially what happened in software, right? People said, just instead of buying Photoshop for, or Salesforce really was the, the start of this, hey, just give us whatever, 100 bucks a month per salesperson, 1200 bucks a year per salesperson, and we'll just keep updating the software. You buy Photoshop, you'd have Photoshop from whatever edition, whatever year. And if you didn't want the new features, you could just use the old version, but you would get FOMO, your friends would have these new features, you got to upgrade the disk for 900 bucks. So it's a really considered purchase, you'd have to think, uh, do I want to upgrade or not? And it's going to take time and I got to learn the new interface. Whereas organically, if you're paying uh, a monthly fee, or you're paying for in app games, games as a service, gas makes much more sense for everybody involved, because it makes it easier from what you're saying for the studio to justify putting a 10 person or 20 person team on continuing to make new seasons, new challenges, etc. That's basically what happened. Yeah, and it, it was almost an incremental step then at the point where now we've got this catalog of smaller pieces of content to let players a la carte just getting the content that they're interested in playing. So if I'm a campaign player and I'm not interested in multiplayer or vice versa, um, or ah. you know, if cosmetics don't appeal to me. And, and so for StarCraft II, that was how we arrived at the moment of saying, all right, we're not going to charge you for the initial download anymore. Um, in fact, we think it's beneficial if more people can get into the ecosystem for free. Uh, and then players can just choose what kind of content appeals to them and buy just mm. that content. Um, and it, it definitely requires a shift in thinking, a shift in the financial model to make sure that it still works. Um, but we were able to make that transition and it, it seemed to be received well by players. The population doubled, basically. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you double the population, you lower the spike of just the spiky revenue when the game comes out. But you uh, have ongoing revenue coming in every month. And I would think that then gets you closer to what the customers want, because you can run more experiments as a startup. Hey, we did these new skins, they fell flat on their faces. Oh, we did this new campaign. And oh, people loved it. We should do more campaigns, do less skins or vice versa. Your, your development team actually gets some feedback loop that lets them match the, the, the customer need to the products you're making. That's right. Yeah. And that feedback loop is such a beneficial thing for us as developers, because it brings new ideas that we're able to respond to more quickly. Uh, and it also 
lets us course correct when we've gone down a path that's just not striking the right chord. What about subscriptions? Just, you know, we had World, uh, I'm sorry, what was the, um, uh, wow, World, was it World of Warcraft where people pay 15 bucks a month? To, and like you get your character, now you're level, whatever. You kind of have no choice but to keep paying. Did that model fizzle out because it was too expensive or it felt predatory or how, how, what happened to that one? Because if I could subscribe to StarCraft for five bucks a month, I would do it or Age of Empires for five bucks a month, I would do it. But I've never bought skins. I, it doesn't appeal to me or campaigns. I just like to play a heads up match. It feels to me. And so, by the way, World of Warcraft is still going great and, uh, you know, continues to support subscription model. But it feels like many games have implemented season passes or mm. similar mechanics like that where it's sort of like a subscription there's a regular amount that you're paying in exchange for access to a certain amount of regular content um, from the developers but it's not quite the same as a subscription in as much as mm. you know you can still play the game without it uh, and there are usually ways to a la carte purchase that content if you don't want to pay regularly do you look at the monthly fee as something you want to do with stormgate your new title uh, or do you just look at it as upselling people for campaigns and stuff in the game or are you going to sell the initial version i'd love to give you 50 bucks for the initial version i feel bad not paying so i want to pay you but i you know generally the free version is enough for me as a you know i'll call myself like a medium caliber player well good I, we're trying to take a lot of learnings from our experience on starcraft 2 um which did seem to be well received by players. For StarCraft II, um, there are certain content purchases that you can make straight up. Um, a campaign pack, for example, mm. uh, or a new hero for the cooperative mode. Uh, we did have some seasonal events that for StarCraft II were called war chests, where mm. players could pay to participate and unlock content. A portion of the proceeds went to esports. Um, so something like that, uh, we will consider for Frost Giant as well. And when we launch, we'll probably do some kind of bundle offer uh, for players who are more used to doing uh, premium style purchases. But we're so far away from that. We've got a, a year till beta. Um, mm. and, and I should mention, um, anybody interested in signing up for the beta can go to playstormgate.com and register today. But the beta is going to start in about a year. Uh, and then a year after that is where we're hoping to land uh, in terms of launching the game. But it's really going to depend on the feedback that we get during that beta period. So we're not setting a fixed launch date yet. Listen, everybody, stop what you're doing. Intercom has an awesome new product, and I need to tell you about it. Basically, it's a connected inbox for your customer support team, and it integrates everything. Intercom Messenger, email, any channel that people are contacting your support team. It's a total game changer. Its layout is beautiful. It's super efficient. And they're thinking about making your team bionic, right? They want to turn everybody on your team into a superhero. So they got all these quick keys and all those great functions. You're never going to lose a customer and your team is going to be happier because it's a better product. It's that simple, folks. And if you're an early stage, high growth startup, you get access to Intercom's Early Stage Academy today, right now, at a 95% discount. I'm not kidding you. Five cents on the dollar is what they're going to charge you as a startup. Why? Because Intercom wants to grow with you and they want to teach you how to build your startup with their tools. And you can apply for their program today at bit.ly slash early stage 22. So it's bit.ly, you know how bit.ly works, bit.ly slash early stage 22. Or you can email them 
at startups at intercom.io and just say, hey, I want to be in the early stage academy and just be honest with them about what your goals are, what you're struggling with. It's such a great team over there. They really care about startups. I've been working with them for a decade, basically. And on July 20th, Intercom is hosting another hybrid event in its CX for Growth series. The event is called Localize Your Customer Support Experience. And we all know what that's about, right? People are starting to use products on a global basis. And you know, you got to meet your customers where they are. And it might not be in your language. And it might not be using your team from one specific location to service another, you may need to localize that to get the best customer support. And they're gonna teach you how to do this at this great hybrid event. So you can go to intercom.com slash webinars, you can check out all their webinars. The team over there, Des Trainer and everybody, uh, you've heard them speak on this program before. They're just experts. They're experts at taking care of customers and reducing churn, increasing lifetime value. And I, I think like 90% of my startups use Intercom. For me to read the ads is really super easy because everybody knows Intercom and everybody gets great value from it. So make sure you use uh, Intercom and uh, go to their webinars and check out their new product. Congratulations to the team over there for Intercom Messenger. What a great idea. So as a startup, you chose to do this as a startup, you raised money from a Korean internet company. Is it cacao? You've got it cacao. Yeah, cacao. So you obviously Starcraft being popular in Korea. Um, I, I'm sure the Koreans are chomping on the bit to have essentially, you know, uh, some new RTS IP. Th there hasn't really been new RTS IP has there? There have been some indie games. Um, but there there hasn't been anything really high profile. That's fair. Okay, so you raise over $30 million to do this. Uh, and you decide to start your own independent company. Venture capitalists in the United States are not interested in backing companies like this. It has to be strategics uh, who have an interest in it. Great question. We actually did an initial seed round with a number of game funds, and including some US funds. Uh, but I think for the big dollar amounts uh, in our, our Series A was a $25 million round. Typically, those are either strategics or generalist VCs who are starting to get some exposure to games. Um, but it, yeah, I think it's fair to say Korea has a love for RTS and a history with RTS um, that made Kakao a good partner for us. Um, but there are certainly some US companies and European companies involved as well. And it, it's because it's a hit space business, right? It's, it's hard to bet on one title. So was your pitch to them, hey, we're going to build one title or hey, Frost Giant's going to have eventually five titles, and you're going to be buying into a company that will have five different titles over 10 years, etc. Uh, how do you pitch that to the investors? We did pitch Frost Giant on the strength of one title initially. But you're right, um, there is very much a perception of games being a hit driven business. And for a long time, that meant that venture capital was reluctant to back game studios. There were some investors, um, particularly Mitch Lasky at Benchmark, who were making game, invest game investments and were realizing some big successes. Mitch was in Riot early. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, this is me speculating, but my sense is that VCs have come to think about games as a sector as a portfolio play rather mm. than each company necessarily needing to be its own portfolio play across multiple games. How many people does it take to make like a, a, a great game like Starcraft in today's world? And how many years does it take, you know, the team, there must be an optimal size team, right? You, you can't just throw a bunch of people at this. Because it seems to me like building a magazine or running an orchestra, it's not 
just about how much money you throw at it. It's about talent coming together over some period of time in sync, because if the orchestra is not in sync, it sounds horrible and your ears bleed, you know, with a magazine, uh, this old art form of, you know, writers, graphic designers and photographers coming together to put something together. It seems to me or like a movie, you know, you have to get everybody in sync. You can't just throw bodies at it. So, so educate us on what it takes in terms of time and team composure to make something extraordinary uh, in this space. Yeah, across games in general, there's such a variety of team sizes. I, I talked to uh, a team of two that is starting to test their game on Steam right now. Uh, and it, it's a really cool game. Obviously, the scope is more focused, but I mean, two people made, made a pretty solid game. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, um, you look at some of these games like Red Dead Redemption or Assassin's Creed that involve multiple studios and I believe in excess of a thousand contributors in wow. some cases to these. Yeah, it's, it's incredible scope. RTS games having, um, been around for a long time, uh, you know, haven't heard of anybody applying a thousand people to an RTS game. Uh, you know, Really, our team size is around 50 right now between full-time and contract. We'll grow a bit before we launch the game, but we expect to stay under 100 in terms of core development. Um, when you factor in the companies that we work with who are helping us build cinematic or who will ultimately help us do quality assurance for the game, um, you know, who contribute important pieces to the overall development, but who don't sit here in the studio with us um obviously the numbers do go up but um we'll we'll be in that sort of 50 to 70 range as team size to ship this game and then how much a time does it take a team of 50 to you know get the product to launch because i found out about you a friend of mine who's in the music business who knows i was obsessed with starcraft and age of empires like you know about frost giant it's like it's the dudes from starcraft and they're going to do like this new, you know, real time strategy. I was like, Oh, my God, no. <laughs> and I, I literally started following your every move on social media and like, investigating, like, you know, what is this going to be from start to finish to, you know, to me playing from when you get the money in the bank from your investors, how many months, how many years is the is the journey? Without knowing exactly when we're going to feel like the game is ready to launch. Um, it, it's hard to put in a precise number on it. But my, my expectation is that we will spend about four years in development to wow. put a first version out there. And again, games as a service will continue to update um, and add to it for potentially a decade or more after that. Um, and, you know, for StarCraft, I, I wasn't there for the original development, but my understanding is, um, they spent over seven years, um, but it, in part because of some interruptions, like the team went off to help Diablo three along the way and, huh. and some other things like that, but still, uh, multiple year journey, um, to build something that's really polished and, and really high quality. So you're in year two or three right now at this moment. Uh, year two yeah year two 50 people you're spending about six seven million dollars a year about half a million dollars a month based on my experience so you're basically talking about if over four years you, you have to basically spend 25 million dollars to get something like this out the door uh ballpark yeah and, I, and I, 
there are other expenses like creating cinematics, localization, huh. you know, things that you spend on externally, uh, marketing costs, server costs, uh, oh, yes. all, all of these things add up. So, so add another five, 10 million. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. And so in order to make that work, you have to have, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, a million people participate in the game if the average user spends 25 a year 50 a year I'm, I'm coming up with a number here what does the average work out to you if you have half the people don't pay half do pay you, you need to get to what kind of numbers to make this successful in other words you know break even to profitable uh, which would be the first benchmark for any company to be successful you know in a sustained state you're probably spending a million a month keeping something like this up and running so yeah a million a month if you've got a hundred thousand people paying 10 bucks a month seems completely doable yeah, it's interesting how much this has changed on the business front. So obviously, in the days where we were selling CDs for 50, 60, now $70, you can take the total amount you spend, divide by what you're selling the CDs for, subtract cost of goods, and, and you know how many units you need to sell. Today, the way that players spend in games varies incredibly. So the majority of players will spend nothing even though be, they're playing the game in a free-to-play game. They're part of the ecosystem, and they're providing benefit in terms of excitement and other players to play against. But it's really a minority percentage of players who will spend anything. Mm -hmm. Of that minority percentage, there's another even smaller minority percentage who really get into the game and who potentially purchase every piece of content that becomes available or you know it's it's their primary hobby they they spend a lot against it these would so, be referred to as whales in the system people who in, in mobile games um that's that's the terminology that they use in uh, pc and core games uh i don't know we, we sort of find that term pejorative but anyhow the uh, you know because it feels like you're taking advantage of them. a whale and gambling is like a sucker so it yeah. is a it is sort of yeah Th these would be passionate users like the, yeah. the top one percent and what do they spend when they you know they'll spend a couple hundred bucks a year on the uh, on a game they love potentially yeah I, I, you know you look at some games uh, world of tanks as an example um i i don't know their numbers but it's possible to spend thousands a year uh in a game like world of tanks uh, we don't actually have the same volume of content that a game like that does. So yeah, that the cap for us is much lower. But um, yeah, passionate players spend a lot for sure. And is there some feeling of predatoriness for you as somebody who loves these games loves what they represent in the industry where you think, you know, we don't want to be abusive to the players, but we do want to build a viable business. So what number do you feel comfortable as the CEO and the, the founder of this company? extracting from the top users because i have a theory on this which is i can't believe that i get you know whatever it winds up being if i play you know three nights a week for two hours each night six times 50 weeks 300 hours 300 hours for free 300 hours even for a dollar an hour or 25 cents an hour i mean it it's an extraordinary value video games are the best bang for the buck in the world that i can think of yeah, we, I, I, it's a great question. And I don't necessarily have a fixed number in mind. But I, I think there's a philosophy in terms of how we approach this, which is that we never want to frustrate players into spending, we only mm. want them to feel like they're getting value for what they're spending money on. Um, that's very important to us. And, and we never want players to pay to win the game. 
Um, you know, giving one player an advantage over another player because they spent more doesn't feel good. In a Is there a term game. for that? Because that's the thing I hate about mobile games. Like I play uh, tower defense. And I just hate the concept that if I don't buy mana and, you know, get addicted to this stuff, I can't get to the next level. And that's where I wind up throwing my iPad against the wall and saying, I just don't want to play these anymore. Yeah. Is there yeah, a term pay, for that? That pay nefarious? To win, pay to pay win. Pay to win is typically the term. Yeah. It's so gross. I hate pay to win. And it just seems like the the iPad, the apps in the app store are the ones that really have made this into a, a science, especially if you have kids, which is why I subscribe to Apple Arcade, because they don't buy into this, I think, largely, they try to strip out that pay to win madness. You know, it seems like early access is a big deal. And when Elon came out with the Roadster, there was a signature series for the first 100 cars. And then when they did the Model S, there was a signature series for the first 1000 cars. I am your customer, I am probably going to play the free version. But for me to get early access would be a dream come true. Now I can use my influence, I got a podcast, you know, maybe now that we're friends, I could DM you. Uh, we're friendly, hopefully. Um, but I would love to be part of the signature equivalent for Frost Giant for Stormgate. Is there a way I could, you could just give the first 10,000 people a number? And we pay you 100 bucks and we get to be part of the beta and talk to y'all. Like that seems like a quick way to bring a million dollars of cash flow in. We've seen a number of other developers um, do founders packs or collectors editions or other ideas yeah. like that. So that's definitely something we'll be thinking about, but it's far enough away um, huh. our launch that we ha don't have any specific plans to announce yet there. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's what I want. You buy into any of this like NFT, uh, in-app, make money to play video games concepts out there? Or do you think that's all just a little silly? I am uh, so focused on delivering entertainment value. Yeah. Um, and that being the primary reason for people to play our game um, that we really have not explored tokens or NFTs that feels like something else it's almost a security it's about investing um, and you know there's nothing wrong with securities or investing but if that's different than providing entertainment value to players um, and i think we want our game to be fun we want our players to be happy um, ultimately those things are our focus rather than trying to create a financial system that people can make money off of, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a giant grift. Let's be honest, like people are kind of making crummy games, and then layering on top of them this like, financial incentive. That's not why video gamers play the game. That's why people play like poker or something. Or, you know, some other game that has finance built into it. But it does seem like it would kill the joy of the game. Yeah, I, I think so many of these kind of uh, Economies that are token based also are susceptible to um, moving money from some players to other players so that, you know, players who are winning are doing so at the expense of people who are losing money, which doesn't feel good. Um, so there's that there's so much fraud, uh, you know, Axie Infinity got hacked. And yeah, um, you know, there's just no real way to reverse those transactions or provide any sort of security to players. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how these technologies um, evolve and mature. But right now, uh, we're just focused on making a good game. Yeah. And, and like kids having to go to their parents for 1000s of dollars or 10s of 1000s of dollars to play a game, it just seems morally corrupt to me. Like it just 
it, it's against the whole ethos of joy and fun and et cetera. So um, you are a producer of games and as well as being the CEO. Uh, and what was, and I assume for Stormgate, your title, you are the producer as well. That is true. Yeah. What was your inspiration for this game? You look at, uh, you know, Starcraft, alien races, outer space, you know, and Age of Empires, obviously historical, you know, and, and everything in between uh, elves and dwarves and other games uh, and Lord of the Rings fantasy. What, what did you come to with Stormgate as your aesthetic and why? And, and then in terms of gameplay, let's get into that and what your thoughts are on modern day RTS gameplay. For sure. Uh, Frost Giant as a team has a mix of team members who were involved not just in Blizzard's science fiction RTS, StarCraft, but also Blizzard's high fantasy RTS, Warcraft. And so just as a team, we're fans of both settings. And as we were coming up with the ideas for our new universe, Stormgate, we incorporated both sets of ideas. Um, we incorporated both science fiction and fantasy into a world that is near future Earth. There is an experiment gone wrong that unleashes horrific aliens onto our planet. And so those aliens bring the fantasy aspect. Um, but being near future Earth, science is advanced to the point that we have mechs, we have uh, all kinds of advanced technology that doesn't exist today. Sweet. So yeah, the kind of that melding of both sci-fi and fantasy both into one world. What, what was that great um, series, uh, that movie where they're fighting the bugs? Uh, oh God, it was such a great cultural... Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers. I'm getting a little Starship Trooper vibes. I'm in the zone. Yeah, uh, that, I, I think that's such a great story. And, and certainly... I would imagine that story influenced uh, yeah. StarCraft to a certain extent too. Yes. But, uh, yeah. People don't remember Starship Troopers. If you're a young person and you haven't watched this, it really does hit on a lot of very interesting themes around fascism and like going to war for your country and, you know, risking your life for your country. It, it's got some really great social commentary in it. I think it's, I watched it recently. I was going to watch it with my kids, but it has aged incredibly well. The same director, I think, Paul uh, Verhoeven, I think he did Robocop as well. It's just, yeah, it's just such a great film. Do, what films uh, inspire you and uh, other source material inspire you in terms of your pursuit in video games? Do you have a, a genre or a series uh, of favorite movies? I I am a fan of uh, so many great films, but I, I I would say for this, a lot of the team are Star Wars fans. Not surprisingly, uh, mm. we certainly have Lord of the Rings fans, uh, Matrix fan. I mean, just there there's so many great film series out there that have influenced us as people growing up through the years. But so when you release a game, there were cinematics and there's gameplay. Explain to the audience the difference between those two things, why they're both important. Um, and then, you know, why you chose to release them now with a game coming out a year from now. How does the marketing of a game work in, in relation to cinematics and gameplay? There are different schools of thought, and, and this too has evolved as, as games themselves evolve. But for us coming out of Blizzard's story and setting are very important to us. We want to create a rich game world that people are excited to be immersed in and to have a story unfold in. Um, mm. So we've put a lot of effort into world building and 
So we launched, or I should say announced, Stormgate with a cinematic at the Summer Games Fest on June 9th. That cinematic tells the story of a member of the human resistance who is seeking a relic and who encounters some of these monstrous aliens uh, the infer- from the Infernal Host. And so there's some conflict that ensues there. Gameplay is something that we plan to share when we're further along. Uh, we want some more development time before we show that off. But we did show some clips just to give people an early glimpse of what our world looks like, at least at this stage in development, which is still pre-alpha. Um, but some games, um, you know, do a much shorter, like, announce that they're coming and then almost instantaneously you can get in and play the game or uh, experience the beta. We really want to take the community along with us on this journey and have them give us input as we're developing the game. Um, Mm. So we elected to announce much earlier at a stage where we're really just world building and developing the technology that we're going to use to deliver the game to players. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does look beautiful off you again, if you're on Twitter, follow, uh, play Stormgate and, uh, we'll show you a clip of that in talk about in terms of RTSs, is there some new concepts you have in, in terms of gameplay or will we as, um, Starcraft fans, age of empires fans just intuitively understand what's going on here? Yeah, great question. Going back to the earlier conversation we had around the first time I saw RTS, it can be an intimidating genre. And we want to reduce that intimidation for new players who are coming into the game. But at the same time, it is super important to us that we don't dumb down the genre so that players of games like StarCraft or Age of Empires or Command & Conquer come into this game and feel like it's delivering everything they expect in terms of high skill and ability to collect resources, build a base, build troops, you know, just all of those core mechanics that you expect. So reconciling those two things is our biggest challenge as developers on this game. And Mm. we talk about it in uh, try to frame it as we're leaving the skill ceiling where it's always been that it's a high skill ceiling for real time strategy games. But where the floor, like the barrier to entry used to be up here, we're trying to bring the floor down so that it's easier for new players to get in. But all Mm. of the depth is still there once they do. A lot of that is about the on-ramp, that first experience that you have Mm. getting into the game. Um, But there are also just a lot of usability improvements that we're making to the interface for the game um, or to the rules for the game to make it more accessible for new players coming in. Yeah, whenever you get one of these games, they do a kind of like a walkthrough where it's like, hey, build your base. Okay, now do this. And they send you on a little mission to teach you how to move units around. You do need how how to understand how to group units and move them around and the resource collection. It it does take whatever, an hour or two to kind of get your legs under you. It's kind of like golfing, skiing, uh, kiteboarding, any of these really rewarding sports, snowboarding. The first day or two kind of sucks. <laughs> you're on your ass a lot. You're trying to figure things out. You feel like an idiot. And then all of a sudden, you know, you catch a vibe and you get up on the board, kiteboarding. I don't know if you've ever done that. Or if you ski or snowboard, you know, you go down a mountain without falling and you, you catch a couple curves and you're like, oh my God, I'm in this for life. Or I guess I would suppose hitting a golf ball that's hasn't happened to me, hitting the green, you know, or hitting a perfect drive. You're all of a sudden like your brain dopamine goes, whoa, this is like, 
a legit pursuit. Yeah, you touched on something in that that I think is really key for us to learn from as well, that so many of these activities that we get into that are deep skill sets, we get brought in through a friend who's already Mm. good at the thing. Uh, And so I I think in the past, real-time strategy games have been a very solitary experience. We are trying, even from the beginning, like your first experience with the game, to think about ways to enable it to be a social experience and for you to perhaps come in with somebody who's already good at RTS um, Mm. and still have a good time, even though they're more expert than you are. That guide on the side concept is the key to skiing. If you're going to learn to ski, you need an instructor. And, you know, it's when I played, I remember Command and Conquer, we set up four computers, you know, it's eight o'clock at night. And I just watched other people play and they just sportscast. They just said to me, like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Now I'm doing this. Here's why I'm doing this. And then I was like, give me a keyboard. I'm in. <laughs> Let's go. And then you start learning different strategies, the rush strategy, the fortification strategy, whatever it is. Um, but there is something different today where YouTube exists and Twitch exists. This didn't exist in that era. So it had to be the guide on the side. It had to be what we call in, you know, the 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 venture business, like over the shoulder virality. Somebody showed you Uber. They showed you com.com, they showed you Robinhood or Coinbase, and then you downloaded it and they just walked you through it. They were your walkthrough. Um, how much has Twitch and YouTube changed all this? Twitch, uh, in many ways, came into existence uh, from StarCraft, interestingly, mm-hmm. that, yeah. you know, just Justin TV, the precursor to Twitch, um, really was part and parcel with um, early StarCraft days. So it's so cool to have seen this other aspect, this other vector for people to get exposed to games evolve in tandem with games. And yeah, these days, Twitch and YouTube have become important parts of game marketing, but also learning how to play games, as you said, watching other people play before you come in. Uh, We are definitely thinking about ways to try to be synergistic with that. And, uh, you know, the folks at Amazon who on Twitch have been very supportive as well. It would seem like a very easy solution to this would be to have uh, a webinar equivalent inside of the game, where if I loaded the game, I've never seen anybody do this, and you tell me if it exists, if every night or every two hours, there was a tutorial, and you could watch live and then just like the Apple store did this right in the back, you see people who are never had a phone before. And they have like a smartphone or you know, an iMovie and they just teach people the basics, like just doing a nightly thing where somebody picture in a picture just walks you through the game and anybody could watch it would be incredible for teaching people how to play these games have you thought about that and incorporating picture in a picture video of people because video is such a new component and you see people streaming the game to twitch but i've never seen inside of games people use headsets and talk but i've never seen like picture in a picture video i would love to play starcraft and have my video on the screen while i'm playing somebody is that is that existing gaming We've, we've brainstormed a lot about ways to provide um, access to content on Twitch or on YouTube from within the game. And so we're, we're not at a point where we've developed mm-hmm. anything that I can talk about there yet. But I, I think that is um, super valuable. And there are so many personalities um, from Day 9 and Husky back in the early StarCraft days. Uh, these days, you see Vibe or winter or Rotterdam like streamers who are helping players 
experience the game for the first time and understand what mm-hmm. they're seeing. Um, and yeah, providing that connection within the game is just a natural next step. Um, so that's something for us to figure out. All right, we're going to play the clip uh, right now. Here's just a quick clip, and you can talk over and sportscast what we're seeing. All right, this is in-engine footage uh, on Unreal Engine 5. We can see some of the human resistance in mechs uh, up against the Infernal Host coming in. And uh, that was just a very short clip to give you a sense for what the world's going to look like, kind of the tech level of the human resistance and a first taste of some of the units that belong to the infernal host. I love it. I love it. I got some Zerg vibes in there and, uh, you know, some, some Starship Trooper vibes in there for sure. Uh, how do you think about wagering? Wagering in the United States has become uh, demystified. The, the NBA, which was against gambling for decades, uh, and now they are doing not only fantasy sports, but uh, wagering as part of their telecasts. They're, they're, they're giving the point spreads, they're talking, they have the host talking about what bets they made, what parlays they're doing, what over-unders they're doing. It seems to be have become completely acceptable to wager now. You, you must have these debates as a company about wagering. How do you think about wagering as, you know, something to put into esports in the future? Yeah, it's tough for us because our audience spans such a broad age range, age range. Um, so really think in the near term about specifically wagering. Um, I think paying into a prize pool for an esport that is skill based where, you know, the winner takes that prize pool. There are probably some models like that, um, that make more sense for games like Stormgate, but um, we're, we're very sensitive to wanting to be uh, friendly to a broad age range. And uh, I think that's delicate when it comes to wagering. Yeah, introducing 16 and 17 year olds, 15 year olds into gambling seems really dangerous, just like any other adult pursuit. Uh, and so how you would separate those, maybe it's better a third party do that. What are the rules around IP and usage of your game, or just games in general, for competitions. I've always wondered this. So if I wanted to create a sports league around Stormgate, do I need your permission? Do I need to, you know, make sure it's copacetic with you? Or could I just offer a prize pool of $100,000, you know, across whatever number of games and then just throw my own little Stormgate party, you know, competition? How does it work today with other games? Most publishers set a prize pool threshold um, above which you need a direct license from them to run the tournament. Um, ah. But oftentimes beneath that threshold, it's okay to um, you know not have a direct license. That seems completely reasonable. Now, what about IP? If I am making a living off of this, Twitch is obviously making a living, a bunch of streamers are making a living. Do Is there a point at which they should be paying back to the game. I mean, I know they're doing a service in some ways of making the game uh, popular, but they're also using your IP and, and making millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars a year off of it. Um, how do you think about that? And how does the industry think about it writ large? To the extent that streaming, for example, you brought up Twitch, um, really helps promote the game. I think most publishers are just grateful to see streamers exposing the game to new people live um you know when it comes down to actually taking the ip and selling something with it maybe you're making plush toys or you know 
clearly there's a point at which um, the creator of the ideas, it makes sense that they should participate uh, or, or have some control over what gets sold and how their brand gets represented. But yeah, streaming specifically, um, I think Frostgiant, like most publishers, were taking a very open-minded just sense of gratitude towards anyone who helps us promote our game to other people. Would seem that some of these gaming studios would be able to create a competitor to Twitch and just say, hey, you know, if you want to stream our game, you're welcome to do it, but please do it at our service. Why haven't the, you know, the people who own these titles just done that where they make their own Twitch competitor? The, the biggest benefit um, to getting exposure is getting exposed to new eyeballs. And so if it's an owned platform where the eyeballs already know about, like you've completely negated that cross-pollination benefit um so that's the main reason i would say awesome well listen tim you've been very generous with your time i wish you continued success with this i cannot wait to give you a hundred dollars to be one of the first people in the beta uh if you choose to do that everybody can sign up for the service at playstormgate.com playstormgate.com go sign up give me your email address and follow playstormgate uh, on Twitter, rooting for you. I know this is a really hard business and it takes a lot of um, bold, you know, hootspah to get out there and to make your own company to do it. So on behalf of the RTS community, which is incredibly loyal to these games, we're just really excited. I know I talked to a lot of other people who love these games. There just seems to be like genuine excitement that somebody's making like a really high quality title for us. Um, so thanks. And to the team over there, like, we really appreciate you doing it. And uh, it's going to bring a lot of joy to the world. And if you're not into RTS yet, what are you doing? Go download StarCraft 2, get the new Age of Empires for Redux, whatever they're calling it. And just play some I think it's a great thing to play with kids. I think it's like incredible for strategic thinking. Um, like poker, I consider this like chess and poker and real time strategy are all for me in a way to just be good at decision making and, and to play through strategies in your mind different strategies. I, I don't know how you look at it philosophically for kids and, and you know, for, for people looking to become good strategists. Uh, but maybe you could speak a little to that of the, the value of this specific genre of games. Yeah, I think games that cause you to work your mind and be strategic, um, really can benefit long term thinking. And you look at so many folks, you mentioned Alexis Ohanian, uh, Elon Musk is an RTS player. Yep. Um, I, you, uh, Toby, the CEO of Shopify, is another RTS player. Yeah. So both friends um, of the pod, all three friends of the pod. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, I think good correlation um, to thinking games having cerebral benefits long term. Yeah, I think we have to have the return to land parties. I think that's going to be like uh, would be a lot of fun. Poker's become incredibly popular in the entrepreneurial community. I don't know if you play cards. You play cards at all? Absolutely. Oh, you're in Austin, right? Uh, no, actually, Irvine, California. Oh, you! Oh, you're. Oh, so you got some good card rooms down there. Uh, you can play in, or uh, but is is poker a big uh, popular thing in the gaming uh, entrepreneurial community as well? Yeah, and it's interesting how many professional real time strategy players. So the guys who compete at tournaments are also Texas Hold'em players. So uh, really, yeah, there's some some correlation there. But it, it there definitely is. You know, trying to make the best decision possible in real time is a big part of poker, right? You're, you, you don't get to go back and study and then say, okay, here's my decision. You're on the clock and there's money on the line. There's wagering, there's multiple players. There's information, you know, this information you don't know. You might not be, know what's going on at the base. You know, how many troops they've built up yet. You may not know the person, you know, has a set bomb or something. 
So it's, it's a really interesting way do where do you start? Have you started playing PLO yet? Have you gotten no. that bug? No, yeah, I be careful. Yeah. I mean, if you want, it's sort of like, I'm trying to think of an equivalent for real time strategy that would make sense. But you know, when you get four cards, you, know, you think of the permutations of two card possibilities, right? Uh, and how they all work together. And the variance becomes just incredible, you know, with aces being cracked, you know, whatever you, you're 70 80%, you know, depending on how many players you're up against and hold them. You know, now you've got aces, you know, and I don't know, two other random cards in, in PLO when you're starting with four. Oh, my Lord, you know, somebody else has what's called a wrap four, five, six, seven, seven, eight, nine, ten. They've got some suited cards, whatever's good on the flop, Tim is going to lose by the river. It's kind of the opposite of Hold'em in many ways. Uh, it's it's really go to a casino, play Pot Limit Omaha at the lowest possible, you know, stakes if you can find a one dollar, two dollar game, and it will uh, it'll blow your mind. It's You're just making so, me feel like I need to watch this on Twitch first so I get my confidence I, up. I don't you know. You know, get uh, Poker Go is really good. Um, you know, you pay a hundred bucks a year for Poker Go. I'm good friends with Phil Helmuth and. I played on poker go before live uh, high stakes poker. And it's really fun because, you know, you get to see the hands and you get to see how people are playing them. But for something like PLO, watching a little bit of streaming would be very beneficial. Uh, because it is a non it's not intuitive for Hold'em players when they first get into it, which is why they love when Hold'em fish switch gears and go to PLO. Because the what served you well <laughs> in Hold'em will not serve you well in this game. Uh, could work against you in fact you know you, you right. think you hit top pair and you know like this is a good hand or you hit two pair you know you hit two pair on the flop you think this is a great hand it's like nope somebody's got a set <laughs> somebody's got you know seven different flush draws and you know or whatever they've got flush draws and straight draws it's really about hitting two hands in a way you hit some pair or two pair on the board on the flop and then you also have some flush possibilities and you might also have a straight possibilities it really is mind-blowing game. Um, but continued success, Tim. If you're ever up in the Bay and you want to play poker, we've got some fun games up in the Bay. Uh, Much appreciated. Yeah, continued success. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. It's Friday. You know what that means. It's another segment of OK Boomer. OK Boomer. Yeah, we Boomer. got uh, producer Rachel right here to tell us about Richard Mensa, co-founder of Sally, S-A-L-L-E-Y. Sally Forth, a thing a boomer would say. <laughs> What, yeah. is, what, is, what is this company all about? So Sally is building tools and community for content creators. But honestly, we didn't touch too much on Sally. We mostly talked to Richard about his experience as an international founder and how he got ah. into the space. Ah, very good. So talking a little bit about what it's like an international for an international founder to work with maybe American VCs or employees or customers. Uh, exactly. We get that question a lot. Was there any notation or did you did you delve into the oppressive emotional labor that Gen Z's are going through during this incredibly challenging, you know, summer. Um, I no. see a lot of folks really <laughs> suffering with delays at airports and, you know, music festivals, uh, you know, being overcrowded. So any of that come up? It's probably a bad time to mention that I was just talking to Molly about how I couldn't go to a, a concert this weekend because one of my friends I got know. COVID and it was a big bummer. But no, Richard was actually incredibly positive. He oh, cool. came here all the way from Ghana. He's incredibly thankful for this opportunity, really enjoys being a founder here. He was also a founder in Ghana. So it was cool hearing about his experience in two different spaces. 
Yeah. And what a fascinating, like what a work ethic, right? He founded two startups while getting a degree in computer science. Awesome. And, you know, just to just touch on, you know, how crushing it was to miss that concert. We now at launch <laughs> in order to have more Gen Z's here. I'm starting a new program. This is also to keep people working here because mm -hmm. I know how challenging it is sometimes with these concerts getting missed and, you know, bars closing early, whatever it is. Uh, we're now having uh, two, instead of sick days, we're adding two catch a vibe days <laughs> here at launch. So anytime you need to catch a vibe, you just press the button, you get two of those a year. If you need to catch a vibe, Rachel, just let us know. Gen Z heaven. It's Gen, it's Gen Z, Z heaven. Amazing. I'm not kidding. I'm adding two catch a vibe days. <laughs> Great. But if you catch a vibe day at launch, unlike a sick day where you pretend and you don't share on social, I'm getting rid of the sick days and replace it with catch a vibe days because we all know what you do on sick days. You go catch a vibe. So uh, <laughs> if you catch a vibe day, you have to be active on social all day and share it into the corporate slack. Is that oh, fair like enough, it. Rachel? I think I, as long as Nick takes some catch a vibe days too. Yes, Nick's going to get 0.5 catch a vibe days for his <laughs> three years of service, which is actually more like in dog years 21. I mean, it really is. Please catch a vibe, Nick. And yeah. please enjoy this interview with this incredible, cool founder, Richard Mensa, co-founder of Sally. Awesome. All Thanks, right. guys. Okay, Boomer. I understood the assignment. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining this segment of OK Boomer. So Richard Menza, you're the co-founder of Sally, and Sally is building business tools and community for content creators. I think Sally is really cool, but I actually want to hear more about your founder story. I think it's really unique. You're originally from Ghana. Your entire path to where you are today, we got to speak about a few weeks ago, and I just knew I really had to have you on the pod. So thank you so much for joining us. Awesome, Rachel. Thanks for the invite. I'm um, looking forward to sharing a bit more about the, my background all the way through to Sally. It's quite a bit of a background there. So yeah, I don't know how long we have, but we have that. We'll be here for a bit. <laughs> we have just as long as it'll take for you to for you to walk us from start to finish. Mm -hmm. So I guess I want to start off with you originally being from Ghana. Yeah. I don't know if I've met that many international founders lately. And if I have, they've moved to the States um, quite a few years ago. And you actually just moved here for college, correct? Mm -hmm. So I came here for actually a master's that was four years ago. Um, so 2018, actually. Um, I could give you the whole spiel, but basically I, I did an undergrad in computer science in Ghana and I was looking to um, sort of like go to a different school and try a different culture and be able to immerse myself in um, new people and new ideas and new experiences. And I was like, you know what? The best way to do that is go to a different country in the U.S. And as I also like the U.S. particularly because of the fact that I'm able to, um, I mean, move faster with whatever I'm working on. So I'm a huge tech startup person because so i did three startups before coming to the u.s so i was like what if i moved to u.s and what does that startup ecosystem look like because i know that's the best place for vc or the best place for getting the best people like around the world to join the team and um yeah i was like super excited to come to the u.s meet cool people and be hopefully build something truly amazing that impacts the world globally that's so awesome so you said you got your master's degree here in the u.s what mm -hmm. did you study before coming here Study computer science. So, um, you got your master's in computer science too. No, it was in business, just a regular, regular business. <laughs> yeah. You told me too when we were speaking. Sorry, I mixed those up. Yeah. But you told me that you've always known that you wanted to be a founder, mm -hmm. really support entrepreneurially. Is that because Ghana is a place where entrepreneurs are like, everybody wants to be one? Or is it your family? Like, where did this inspiration come from? I think it has to do with my mom to some extent because she was always, 
trying to find um like create new businesses beyond what she was doing right so she was supposed to be a teach she was a teacher um she finished um college and was about to pretty much go into the working force and work in like a company but then um she had us i was the first kid so she was like she had us and she had to like stay home and take care of us so along the line i could see her like starting other things so she's super excited about um hospitality she started like a guest house and i mean she gave me the first book she gave me to read that was her full recommendation was rich dad poor dad by robert kiyosaki and as a kid you're like what is this book about like why would i read this book but then when you read it it's like okay so it sort of like changes your mindset slightly about the way to see the world in so in terms of assets and liabilities so for example like if i go buy i don't know a huge box of candy like that is a liability because i'm just going to keep eating it and it's just going to finish but if i use that money instead to so like invest in something that i i'm passionate about i don't know for some example let's say like a book that's going to teach me something or like a course or something like that that's, to upskill myself that becomes an asset and um i should spend more of my time and energy and money investing more in assets so that was like i got that book when i was like a teenager like 13 14 i was like this is pretty cool it's like i kept ready, reading it all the way to the end and i was like wow so then i just got stuck in that whole kind of cycle of books i read all the books zero to one um all the books like pretty much everything across board we're yeah. gonna have to get a, a whole list of book <laughs> recommendations of her they were that inspirational i think that's awesome and yeah. like you said before you moved here for your master's degree mm-hmm. you had startups before that though like sally's yeah. your first startup correct so what was your sure. first startup ever so it's called Swiper. Um, so that was during my first year of college. I was actually hoping to get into college for aerospace engineering because um, I had a thing for planes. I still do. Um, but in Ghana, you choose your major and I got my second option, which was computer science, which I was actually pretty bummed out about. I was like, what is this computer science thing? Why I cannot build an actual plane with this thing. Um, so, but then after the first semester, I was like, I actually f- saw the possibilities of being able to like build something that, millions of people can use with just a computer and internet connection like you don't really need to get any hardware you don't need to get any huge like factory or anything and i was like oh this is pretty cool um and you look at other companies that did like facebook was pretty much blowing up at the time that was around the same time whatsapp was coming to ghana and i was like maybe i should build my own thing so um the first startup was a year later after that but what we built was like like facebook instagram and twitter into one app um so instead of using the native apps you used our app because our app used much less memory on your phone and our app was like sort of like put made it much more seamless to switch between apps without having to use the download those three apps we had like a compression algorithm behind it um that reduced all these apps to like 1.7 megabytes and it was pretty lightweight for what they can what it could actually do so that was pretty fun I got my classmates using it everyone's using it my dad even downloaded the app that was pretty fun he was talking about oh i have your app on my phone i'm using it that was cool um, but yeah, that was my first founder experience. We had an investor even come in uh, along, along while building it. And, um, it was a huge eye opener, like from something we just thought about, like randomly to like go in. I think one summer we just, I built it out in like two months. Then it was pretty much out there in the Play Store. That's incredible. So that is a huge pivot though. Um, from what like Sally does, what made you decide to like jump around the space? So, um, based on that previous thing I was working on, um, I got my classmates and everyone using it, but then I got to this point where I, I couldn't get a lot more people hearing about it or using it. So it was like, there was this moment where I was like, we have a cool product, people like it, but then how do I get the rest of the world using it? And that was around the same time. I was like, I mean, 
I got hit to the realization that like distribution is really important. Even though you have a good product, you need to figure out a way to get it from people. So I was a technical guy back then. I was like, oh, build it and they will come. And you have all these people just running towards your product because it's cool. Um, but so based on that one, I, um, the next startup I did, I actually was quite intentional about that. So I had a YouTube channel, um, where I was trying to document my journey as a founder in Ghana and just build some following with that one. Um, but I realized how hard it was actually to create content, um, on YouTube more consistently. And I was like, you have to do all these pieces I have got to put in together from ideation to editing to putting it out there. And within like two, three months, I was like, yeah, this is pretty hard. And I, I just decided to just, I just stopped like without being trying. Cause it was like, I was like, wow, this is actually a full-time job on its own. Um, so I just, that was like the aha moment for, even though I was trying to build distribution for myself so I don't have to rely on ads or like random people somehow um it was really really hard to build that like content flag around myself which i know so many people go through the same thing because you talk to so many creators um they're struggling every day in day out like stay consistent and some of them are burning out and not creating anymore because of the fact that it's super hard to remain consistent so um that's pretty much what inspired sally my co-founder actually was also a um, blogger where she previously wrote like a startup and tech newsletter and she also came to understand the problem. We're like, you know what? There's something here. We need to like focus on this and um, unlock um, a new way for creating content that doesn't involve burnout. And it's much, much more fun than it actually is right now. Awesome. And you guys met each other, you and your co-founder. You met each other in school, correct? Uh, so we met in Boston, but she was not in the same school. Like, she wasn't even in school at then. She was like graduated. She was working in like um, a marketing role in like a mid-sized tech company in Boston. And we, we happened to meet at a, um, there was a Forbes under 30 conference in 2018. So we both got invited as like Forbes fellows for that event. Yes. And then that's where we matched on some app and we said, okay, let's just sit down and get to know each other for like 30 minutes. Maybe some, we, we don't know what is going to happen, what's going to happen here. And we actually ended up talking for three hours straight and actually closing down the entire restaurant. And it was like, okay, we need to be in touch. Let's, let's, let's keep in touch. There's something here. So for you guys met in 2018, when did Sally actually start then? How, how, like how long after that conversation? So Sally, as it is right now, um, is, I mean, with the focus on creators and everything is more started in January. Um, but initially what we had was something that was connecting, we called it LSX, so the previous name of, of the product it was matching startup teams with creators and media. So the goal there was how do we help these startups get authentic, um, distribution without having to push for it? Um, so as a marketplace, we had a huge wait list of like 400 plus startups who've raised, um, not of $300 million who wanted to use the product. And we also had creators from across board, some huge newsletter writers, um, and also some huge podcasters using it. Um, so we're, we're going to be ramping up with that one, but we always kept seeing that creators were actually like not, I mean, they say they create content every week or every month, but then from our data, we could tell that it was not true because you could see how hard it was for them to keep going and like so with talking to so many creators we're like okay there's something here we need to like focus on because these creators are um like are not as constant as they want to be and also like with my past experience i was like yeah of course this is quite hard to do so why don't we just focus on making sure these guys are um creating more content and actually having more fun creating content and not like struggling with all the small pieces they have to take care of so that's why we started zeroing on creators so we killed the other product we had revenue and everything we just killed it and everything and we're like you know what let's focus on creators and because this is where we think the future is going so it's pretty fun 
you've really hit the ground running since you moved from this from uh, Ghana to the states. Do you yeah. have good advice for other international founders? There's so much advice out there, <laughs> um, but I think for me it will be like, I mean, what I've seen particularly most with most international founders is that they tend to um, not like just play it somehow small sometimes because they're just trying to like get into the whole system and like be able to adapt into that. So I think my thing is just have that big vision. If you're going to start a startup, you might as well just shoot for the moon, do something really impactful. Um, so that's one advice I would give. And I want to use like your network is super important because I came to the US with zero network, um, no one. And I had to literally build it up from scratch, getting to know so many new people um, just to be able to build something truly remarkable what we're doing now. Um, I mean, I met cool people like you because of um, <laughs> like meeting other people. So definitely network is important. And um, I mean, you can build something pretty remarkable because if you think about it, like someone like Elon is pretty much international. He came from SA to um, Canada, then to the US. And we're talking about Tesla and SpaceX now. So I think the the capability of international founders is quite huge and we should get more international founders like starting companies and they should probably think of leaving Fang because Fang is not the best place to be. Yeah. And how can we, um, the ecosystem in venture capital that is mostly people in the United States, they're mm -hmm. normally from here, right? How can they be better at supporting international founders? I think it starts, it starts with getting to, ha to have a lot more international friends, right? Because I think, um, usually when you're wrapped up with a particular circle, you don't really get to experience what it feels like to see life from a different point of view. Um, so let's say you had, you were born and raised in the Bay Area. You grew up and your dad was working in Fang and your whole life is around tech companies and someone from a different country comes in. You don't probably get their point of view. And if you're building products for, I mean, the world from the somewhere in the Bay Area or something like that, um, you're not really accounting for like multiple cultures around the world because the world is very diverse, very vast. And I mean, the SF culture is not equal to the culture in, I don't know, like India somewhere or somewhere in Africa or somewhere in Asia. And so I think you should try and immerse yourself, especially if you're building a global company or you want to invest in global teams that are disrupting industries. The best thing for you to do is like, get out of your comfort zone, meet other people from different parts of the world. And um, yeah, and when it comes to international founders, uh, sometimes it's hard for people to take early bets on them because they're new and they don't have like the network yet and everything. But um, I mean, we know a huge percentage of the current unicorns are pretty much founded by international founders, more than like 50%. Yeah. So that is not, I mean, that is shouldn't be a reason for you to not say no to someone because that shouldn't be a reason for you to want to bet on them. So, yeah. Is there something that was a lot harder for you starting Sally that you didn't necessarily expect? Let me think about that one. Yeah. After starting, you know, a company in Ghana versus the US, I'd love to hear like the differences between the two. I think I think with the US, there's I, I see the um the business environment in the US as more like cooperative. That is quite different. I mean, Ghana is more like, okay, so we're competing with these guys and you're just trying to like build software and like trying to make them with a amount of money. But the US feels, I mean, particularly in the tech scene, it feels more collaborative in some sense. So sometimes like, for example, like in Ghana, before you tell someone an idea, you'd be like, oh, you want to like sign an NDA or like you don't want to share too much information. But in the US, like particularly in the tech sector, you just talk about ideas and share ideas freely, which is quite different from what I'm used to. Um, and I think that actually is a huge unlock when you think about it from an innovation point of view, because of the fact that, um, you can see all the loopholes in the idea. You can also see all the possibilities in the idea by just talking about it. I mean, there's also a risk factor, there's a huge risk factor, right? Because I mean, yeah, 
people who have experienced where the ideas, the ideas have been like taken up, their stories like that. Um, but they are very rare, um, particularly in the US. So, um, yeah, I think that's one thing that I didn't really expect how open everything is. And like, and I also like the fact, I like how founders here are much more helpful to each other. Um, because like, again, it's, it's, it's a much more open, like, it's like a big picture kind of thinking. So they don't like see the pie as like very small and they're competing for it, but you have like a bigger pie that you're expanding together create something um truly remarkable yeah and in a world of like this violent push for remote work it seems mm -hmm. like everybody our age absolutely loves remote work <laughs> um you decided to move to new york city from boston why did you decide to move here and i if i'm correct your co-founder i believe it mm -hmm. also recently moved here why did yeah. you guys decide to move to new york city do you see like this is like a tech hub rather than boston and are you guys remote yeah. So, I mean, to give you some context, um, I used, my first city was Boston. I also lived in San Francisco and Denver, then Raleigh and now New York. Um, I feel like New York is the best position city, particularly because of how much less time I've spent commuting, um, how much talent is in the city. Um, I mean, cost of rent and everything is quite high that I'll give it, but so, but then food is very diverse. I'm a very diverse person. So I think what we're trying to go for is like, what is the best city, um, particularly what we're working with? We have a bunch of creators here in New York and a bunch of creators and media folks in LA too. So these are the two main cities that I see um, could be huge um, value add for what we're building. And being in New York, um, I've actually met so many content creators. In fact, we just hired one of them who will be joining the team tomorrow for this first day. Wow. And he has like 1.7 million people on TikTok. And um, I met up with him in New York and we became buddies and we just saw synergies in there. We're like, yeah, come join the team as a creator in residence. So, um, yeah, Boston is a cool city. I don't have anything against the city of Boston. Um, but I think, I think they're sitting industries that thrive much better in Boston, um, than they would in other cities. New York seems like the melting pot for like so many different industries and so many different backgrounds and so many different verticals. And it's, I feel like everyone in New York is an outsider. So you actually feel very homey when you're in New York because everyone is from somewhere, which is something I really love about the city. So you mentioned New York and LA, but you didn't mention SF. Yeah, um, yeah I have my reservations for SF. <laughs> I, I I used to live there for quite a bit. I was actually there recently about two, three months ago. Um, I, I feel like the culture is a bit risk adverse for me because I feel like I'm very, I like to take on risk and do something pretty remarkable and push the limits. But I feel like when I was in SF and people I knew in SF seemed like they just want to not push as much did you, did you feel like you know the playbook you didn't want to keep going with that i don't know what it is but um because when i was there i mean new york was like open and everything that was somewhere february and march february march and like covid is over and everything in new york and was like living their lives and as i was like oh like are you sure covid is over um like i don't want to get COVID. so it was like very discautious I, mean, I know it's important to like we're vaccinated and everything but it's important to um have a culture where people like are willing to take some setting of risk. I mean, technological risk and also like personal risk to be able to learn new things. Um, which I think it's New York is like, yeah, there's so much hustle. People are like, yeah, I'm just whatever happens. Even if something happens, you just wake up the next morning and New York is alive again, which is something I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, New York is a great, I've th been thinking about this a lot. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that are, you know, um, right now in particular, a lot of friends are out in SF getting a little bit of the cooler weather 
as New York gets yeah. crazy hot. And in you know, yeah. January, we, I have some friends also go to SF to avoid New York's crazy cold weather. And <laughs> I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't know if I even like leaving the city that much in the summer because it really comes alive. And our paths even crossed during there was like a little creator economy mm-hmm. um, meetup yeah. at, at a bar. And that's how we met. And there are those kind of meetups um, happening all over New York City all the time. And I'm not even a founder. I'm work here. I work at a podcast. You know what I mean? And people are still super willing to meet with you in person. And I feel like coming from um, the Baltimore area before this and doing short-term Airbnbs for a while, I was like really searching for this sense of community that New York seems to offer, not only personally, but on a professional level, you know, working at smart startups, you tend to have a fairly small team. So being able to do things like meet other founders um, in this space. I mean, other people that are in podcasting, um, it mm-hmm. makes the world feel a little bit, a little bit less massive, and helps you, you know, just have that, have that face to face interaction that a lot of us are missing out on. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one. Um, I think, I mean, one thing I said about New York, particularly that I keep repeating, is in New York is the only city where you can do like three events in the same night because you have subways. If you, you cannot do that in SF as much, you cannot do that in LA. Um, it's like everything is closed by, and your times pretty much goes much further in New York than it can. And I think in other cities when it comes to commuting and um, stuff. So, yeah. I love that. I think that's, that's a huge reason why I moved here. Um, mostly because honestly, a huge reason was I didn't have to have a car. I have a car back home <laughs> that I share with a bunch of my siblings. And if I moved out, I either would have had to buy my car off my parents or buy a new car. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like I rather stuck it up, move to a really expensive city and have an excellent form of public transportation, live in an area where I can walk to get my groceries and such. Um, the lack of, I also find that the lack of difficulties commuting and being able to take public transport makes me feel more social. Like at default, although as talkative I am, as I am, um, like on the internet, I think that if I was somewhere or if I lived somewhere where I had to drive and wasn't able to walk to see people, um, yeah. it would really hold me back. Like when I was living out in the suburbs of Baltimore, I lived really close to the city. Um, like I'm not kidding. It might have been like, between a 12 and 20 minute drive to get into the city. And I, I almost never went. I went maybe twice a month just because there was that factor of that commuting. And it's like, well, I already work from home. At the end of the day, I want to, you know, like work out, have dinner. And by that time, I'm like, you know what? I haven't had to step foot in the car yet. Why, why go now? And so by being able to have all this really good public transportation and things that are really close and compact, I find that engaging much more the community, um, community, especially the tech community, which is, a group of people that are more than willing, like you said, to connect mm-hmm. at any time. I'm constantly going into WeWorks, going, seeing, checking out people's offices and things like that, just to see what's up. Like, mm-hmm. it's, I feel very, very thankful that we're able to live in New York during this time in particular, where people are so willing to share their advice and what they're building. I totally agree with you on that one. Um, so, I mean, just so you, uh, something I also realized pretty recently was that over the last three to six months, everyone I've met pretty recently has been either coming from LA or SF and moving to New York. So I was like, yeah, like literally I've met so many tech people moving to New yeah, York. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah. But I wonder why. But I don't know. I mean, it has something special, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's something like that. Do you have Do you have any more advice for people looking to either move to a new, new city, move to a new country and start a company here? Yeah, just take their... I mean, I, I know it's quite daunting because it was quite daunting for me because i remember that day i was getting on the plane it was an evening with my parents were at, like the gate and everything and i was like leaving it was quite like oh my god i don't know what i'm going to do when i'm going to new country but 
came over here like now we have four years in and i'm loving it um so i, I wow. think you, yeah so i think what the lesson there is uh it's going to take a lot of discomfort and again as a founder i mean you should be really comfortable with discomfort and adapting because again markets change um people leave you, things happen in companies and you should be able to adapt really fast so i think even the sheer fact that you're switching countries shows that you have a lot of grit which is extremely important uh, when it comes to starting a company so just i mean just do it um it's going to be hard but then do it and, and it is eventually going to pay off if you also meet the right people and network with the right people because if you just move to a different new country and just like in your bubble of people from your country and just like a small set of people you already know like that's not likely to help out as much but you want to like expand your network and meet other people from other backgrounds and um yeah just be able to help other people too so that's amazing advice i'm really really excited to see how sally does in the future um where can people find sally you can find us on twitter and linkedin we're just starting up a tiktok soon but um on on twitter we're at sally inc s-a-l-l-e-y-i-n-c on linkedin you could just search sally in the search bar um there's a company account for that one and yeah feel free to like give us your feedback your comments and we have a newsletter actually called story alley so if you have if you want to get into what's happening in the creator economy, just subscribe to that. And yeah, we're happy to like keep you posted. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, t- for joining today, uh, mm-hmm. Richard. I'm really excited, like I said, to see where Sally goes. And I'll have to check, it, check up on you in, uh, in the next few months. Awesome. Great chatting, Rachel. And looking forward to seeing you in real life again. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll see you. I'm sure we'll make time next week. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. It is the weekend, but our shows are not over. No, no. No, no, no. Tons of show coming to you this Sunday. We'll have another great edition of This Week in Climate Startups and VC Sunday School, which you all love, especially if you're on the other side of the table. What I'm hearing from people, Molly, is, hey, I'm a founder. I like to listen to VC Sunday School because I then understand the person across from the table, I can negotiate better and I can have a little empathy for their position. So it's really helping both sides of the table. 100%. I keep getting emails from founders that are like, I heard you talk about this and I just wanted to address it specifically. And I'm like, mm. it's working. Um, we also are excited to spend the weekend hanging out with you on the internet. Follow Jason yes. and I on Twitter at Jason and at Mollywood. We're doing co-tweets. Now. Yes, we will be doing co-tweets and I get to see all of the bras <laughs> and spam and bot accounts brigading molly and so big brother is now here and anybody who says something to my 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 little sister is going to get tossed so be careful in our co-tweet replies i love the idea that the co-tweet could cause all of this social change where all of a sudden all these people are like wait you get treated like crap on the internet well you know it's kind of awesome i have to say i am in a mixed race marriage and when i was married to somebody who was not a caucasian I did see Asian hate up close and personal where my wife and I would go and I don't know, she'd be talking to somebody in the service industry or whatever. They treat her one way. Mm. And I'd be like, well, they would never speak to me that way. They would just diminish her. And then I go down to the front desk. I'm like, I need a late checkout. But, oh, Mr. Calacanis, of course. She's like, you need a late checkout. Person's like, I- I'm sorry, I'm busy. <laughs> so I think it is actually for empathy. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm seeing right? in these quote tweets, different eyes. And there are some weird dudes replying to you about some really weird alt-right stuff. And uh, I'm coming at you guys, so be careful out there. Uh, also, <laughs> Look I, I just want to say thanks to all the sponsors who make this show happen. Uh, Notion, we use it every day. We love it. Squarespace, the most beautiful websites in the world. Masterclass, making me smarter every day. I'm going to start taking the Steph Curry three-pointing 
shooting class because I got a basketball court here in Tahoe and I want to get some old man runs in in broker keeping the insurance tight and right for all my startups thorn keeping us healthy I got a couple of people in the company you know I gifted them a thorn uh, gift card because I just wanted to do something nice for employees you should do that for your employees as well Indochino for all my great suits and shirts doing a great job there Microsoft they support startups like you wouldn't believe masterworks i'm buying my second uh, fractional ownership of art there molly and of course lemon.io molly which one of our startups needs a developer all, all of our of startups them. need another developer <laughs> lemon.io is going to help you get that developer policy genius so you can have uh, life insurance vanta get your sock two intercom so you understand your customers and you reply to them in those little chat boxes and you get segmentation all that good stuff bubbles bubbles, bubbles. molly so you People can are then pitching on bubbles now they're it's pitching happening. us on bubbles do it's it a brave the greatest browser ever mm-hmm. and of course i trust which gets your crypto ira tight and right i'm going to start investing for my uh, ira and i'm going to put a little crypto in there you know i still believe in bitcoin and ethereum i think there's some good stuff out there all right, all right. everybody thanks to those partners it really means a lot that you're supporting the show absolutely thanks everybody and we will be back on sunday